Hey, it's Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this helps you continue to grow in your faith journey. Good morning, Tower Hill Church Online. I'm Pastor Jason. It's so good to be with you this morning. Well, as we jump into September and the craziness of kids starting school and everything changing and new schedules and new routines and all the uncertainty of the pandemic and vaccinations and masks and all this craziness, I was thinking, what would be something that could help us? And honestly, what's something that could help me navigate this really intense season that we are all feeling? One of the things that I've noticed, I'm sure you have too, is that everyone is outraged at everything. Absolutely everything. It's like you can't even talk about anything anymore without somebody getting upset, somebody getting mad. So this series that we're looking at over the next few weeks is called Love in the Age of Outrage. How do we bring the gospel to bear in this cultural moment? How do we as Christians navigate all of this stuff well? I know that during the pandemic or, you know, the 18 months really since the lockdown, not only is everybody mad, but it's like, no, you know, I'll just see what's on the news or I'll check my social media. And this is what I see. Absolute dumpster fire, right? Everybody's just slinging arrows at each other. And it's, it was so sensitive. And I know, listen, for a lot of these things and cancel culture and all of that, There were some things that came out that needed to, that should have been conversations for a really long time and had been put away or sidelined for one reason or another. And so I think some of the conversations, it was good to address them. But at one point, it's like cancel culture has gotten crazy. When when there was a call on social media to cancel Nickelodeon's Paw Patrol, I knew that we'd gone too far. But I think it just kind of goes to show that everybody is so on edge. It's like the next available emotion to us is outrage. It's on the tip of our tongues. It's always there playing in the background. What was the one thing that Hulk said in the Avengers movies? The secret is that he's always angry. I feel like that's, that's the culture that we find ourselves in now. So what do we do about it? And I'll admit, I'm, I'm not immune to this whole age of outrage, I definitely noticed, especially in those first six months of the lockdown, that my fuse, which is usually very long, had become razor thin. Outrage seemed to be the next available emotion to me. And I I didn't know what to do about that because I don't think that's what God wants for us is just to be outraged all the time. And honestly, Christians sometimes are the worst offenders. I think it's easy to point at culture and be like, oh yeah, they're a mess. Yeah, dumpster fire. But I think we're adding fuel to that dumpster fire too. So what do we do? I want to introduce you to a book that was really the inspiration for this series. It was a a book by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage. How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. And this is a wonderful read, and I'm going to be having a conversation with this book along with Scripture to sort of tease out what are some things that we can do as Christians to navigate the outrage and to bring Christ's love to bear instead. How do we do that in a healthy way? How do we model what it looks like to have healthy, genuine interactions with people in the way of Christ? I think that's probably worth investigating. 
Stetzer begins in his introduction, he, he talks about social media. He says, Facebook is a cesspool of conspiracy theories, straw man arguments, and schoolyard bullying. We have reached the point where the comment sections of major newspapers are a greater testament to the depravity of man than all the theology of the reformers put together. (laughs) Many publishers have removed comments from below their online articles, so the vitriol will end. These arguments, he says, have a cumulative effect with each successive interaction ratcheting up to outrage. Man, he, he is so spot on. He wrote this book way prior to the pandemic as well. And he was a bit prophetic and kind of pointing out what are these areas that were really going to be major issues during these last 18 months. And again, Christians are just as guilty as anyone of getting involved in this. Just think about, remember in 2015, the controversy with the red Starbucks cups? You remember this? There was uh, a man in 2015, Joshua Feuerstein, who posted on his Facebook account, said, Starbucks removed Christmas from their cups because they hate Jesus. And he made sure to tag a bunch of different media outlets in order to get some attention. Well, it worked. This went viral Christians freaked out. They were up in arms. And there was like this call to cancel Starbucks. How dare they try to remove Christmas because they hate Jesus? I mean, and Stetzer goes on to say, this is from the book. He says, can you imagine the conversation in the Starbucks boardroom? Did they say those Christians are fair-minded, gracious, and thoughtful? I am guessing not. And that's the issue, right? is that when Christians jump to outrage, it damages our witness. It damages what we say is most important in this relationship with Jesus that gives us peace and hope and joy, and not outrage or despair. And Stetzer goes on to say, and and the whole thing wasn't even true. Starbucks had never put Merry Christmas on their cups before. They had put, you know, kind of vague wintry themes and designs and words like joy and um, you know, hope and, and things like that. But they never said Merry Christmas or, I mean, they, they aren't a Christian company. Why is it their job as a corporation to say Merry Christmas? That's the job of the Christians, in my view. But his whole point was, even though it wasn't even true, outrage overwhelms truth. I think we could probably take that and apply it to a lot of different situations that we've seen over the last 18 months. Outrage overwhelms truth. There's no nuanced conversation anymore. You you can't have a nuanced conversation about something. It's always you're either for or you're against. What team are you on? Because if you're not on the right team, you should be canceled. But outrage is a problem because if you're a Christian and you think outrage is justified, I really don't see how. Because outrage, and again, this is a quote from Stetzer. He says, it's disproportionate, it's selfish, it's divisive, it's visceral, it's domineering, it's dishonest. It's, in every way, it's a sin. How do you know that? Because contrast it with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If that's the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't look anything like outrage. Outrage is sin. Now, I know some, some of you will ask, and maybe you're asking now, well, isn't anger appropriate sometimes, like righteous anger? Of course it is. Jesus got angry. But I think we use this category of righteous anger a little too loosely. First of all, God's righteous anger, 
an anger that comes from his righteousness, always flowed from his love. Is your quote-unquote righteous anger flowing from a place of love? Are you slow to anger, as Exodus points out about God? Are you slow to anger and quick to mercy? Is this really righteous anger we're talking about? Or is this a nice, convenient excuse for the outrage that you're feeling? Now listen, I'm not here to just beat us all up, but I think this is something we have to own and say, well, maybe all the outrage I've been feeling isn't outrage I've been feeling isn't exactly what God has in mind, or maybe it's not exactly righteous anger. Stetzer says, if the age of outrage has taught us anything, it's that we Christians are exceptionally bad stewards of our anger. <laughs> and I think we have to agree. So the question that becomes is, how do we navigate the outrage in order to engage our world with the love of Christ? How do we navigate the outrage in order to engage? Because that's what this is really about, right? We want to bring the love of Jesus Christ to bear on whatever's going on in our lives, in our world, with the people that we interact with. So how do we do that? Well, I want to frame it this way, and this is the way that I think Jesus frames it. I'm going to throw a bunch of texts at you, a bunch of verses that lift, lift up this idea, and I want to show you how Jesus models it. It's the idea of truth and love. I think truth and love is the right way to frame how we're to engage the world with the love of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. So 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Ephesians 4, 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. In John chapter 8, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching about love, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands or keep my truth, truth and love. I think the antidote to outrage is truth and love. Jesus wasn't constantly outraged at all the things that he saw around him. Instead, he approached them with truth and love. He never compromised truth, but he never did, you know, brought truth without love. He had both equally, both 100%. One was not sort of mediated by the other. They were both kind of brought up in the same light together, truth and love. And Jesus is the only one who perfectly embodied that. But I think he shows us this is the model for how to navigate this stuff. Because remember, what does outrage do? But it, it creates hatred. And 1 John 2.9 reminds us, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Outrage and hate are not the answer. Pastor Tim Keller, who was the church, famous church planter in New York City of Redeemer, uh, and prolific and wonderful author in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, said this about truth and love. He said, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. It's about radical truth and love. Now, Jesus models this 
everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And I could have picked a million stories that show this, but this is one that kind of immediately came to mind. His interaction with a woman at the well. Not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. Now, Jews and Samaritans would consider themselves enemies. They had different religious views. They had different cultural views. And they would not even associate with each other. And there was always great care when Samaritans traveled in Jewish country and Jews traveled in Samaritan country. And we see this come up a lot in the New Testament. But I think this interaction is a beautiful way of showing how Jesus doesn't leave with outrage. He leads with love and truth. So here's how it goes in the chapter of John. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Clearly, she doesn't totally get what he's saying, but she understands that he's offering something different. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. (laughs) I love that. No kidding. Quite an understatement. I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. If we're to have any hope of loving in the age of outrage, I think we need to take Jesus' example and see what does he do here with this interaction with the woman in the well, and how does that translate to us? I think the first thing that we notice is whether or not Samaritans and Jews were enemies didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus met this woman right where she was in many ways, right? 
met her worse. He didn't lead off by saying all the things that were wrong with her and, oh, you've had all these divorces and, oh, you've had, right? He met her where she was, at the well, and he simply engaged her. He treated her like a human, not like an enemy. And I think maybe that's the first lesson that we all learn is when we engage with people, we start by treating them like humans, like they're worthy of our conversation and our time. I also think that Jesus seemed to be kind of profoundly listening to her, right? I mean, he was really in tune with her. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said the things that he said. It reminds me of James 1, verses 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. I mean, maybe that even sums up this whole outrage business. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Jesus met her where she was. And that was the starting point. And the second thing, notice Jesus leads with offering himself. Offering a new way, a better way. Offering the way of salvation. He leads with love. He starts by speaking into her thirst, her spiritual thirst, and saying, I have a remedy. I have an answer. He didn't point out all the things that he was going to say right away. He led with love. But then that didn't stop him from also speaking the truth. He used the context of love and saying, hey, I have this thing to offer you by speaking the truth. I mean, didn't, Jesus didn't compromise the truth and he wasn't afraid to address the truth, but he did so with love. What does this look like for us to do it now? How do we speak the truth in love? I think there's a million examples, but again, if we start by treating people like human beings, especially if they disagree with us, and then leading with love, I think this is the way forward. For us to to love in the age of outrage, I think it looks like being, engaging in a way of love and truth, no matter what that looks like however that looks like. And I think, kind of back to Tim Keller, I think he was a great example of this. Here's what I mean. In 2017, Princeton Theological Seminary, my alma mater, um, gave an award to Tim Keller called the Abraham Kuyper Award for Reformed Theology. And this is a big award. And uh, it's, it was also, this award is a vestige of a more, I would say, a more conservative lane of Orthodox Christianity than the seminary currently sits in. And, but, I mean, Tim Keller, if I thought of anyone who shows or kind of uh, lifts up Kuyperian theology, it's Tim Keller. Like, he deserved this award for sure. But once it was announced that he was getting the award, there was an immediate backlash from some of the students and faculty of the seminary. And it all had to do with um, his views or his denomination's views about women's ordination and LGBTQ issues. So I said, well, you can't give this award to Tim Keller. Like, basically, cancel it. And Keller, in all the ways that he could have, um, I, th- I think he had a right to be outraged, right? I think he had a right to be angry. Um, why would the seminary give an award and then, and then take it back? Because that's what they did. They, took the, they were going to take the award back or strip the award from him. And he, had, he offered this really gracious solution. He said, look, don't give me the award. But let me come and give, give the talk anyway to foster open dialogue and understanding and, and a chance. And it was an incredible success. I thought Pastor Keller navigated this situation with incredible truth and love. He didn't compromise what he believed and what he was going to talk about. 
but at the same time, he led with love. He didn't come off as overly offended or outraged. He just saw it as an opportunity to lead with the love and truth of Jesus Christ. And regardless about how you feel about any pastor's positions or Tim Keller's positions, I thought he modeled it beautifully. And I think this is kind of what it looks like for us. And maybe we start with just a self-reflective question. Am I falling into outrage in this situation or am I looking to engage with Christ's love? And that's an easy question for us to figure out the answer to if, we're, if we allow ourselves to ask it, right? Because usually we know the answer before we ask it, so that's why we don't want to ask the question. But whatever it is, whether it's who you're engaging with on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, you know, the newspaper article that you're reading or the, the news program that you're watching or what's happening in your schools, what's happening in your government, whatever that looks like, ask yourself the question, am I falling into outrage here? What's the opportunity for me to engage with Christ's love? And if we could start doing that, we can actually start loving in the age of outrage. Yes, even in the age of outrage. Amen.